Hey everyone, this is Luke Wyatt, and you're listening to The Vote Podcast. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I have a dream. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I can hear you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Read my lips. And that's about all I hope to say to Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The best is yet to come. May God bless you all. May God protect our troops. That the nation shall have a new birth of freedom. That government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Hey everyone, what's going on? This is Luke Wyatt, and once again, this is The Vote Podcast. Before I start today's show, I would like to address something. Senator Max Wise gave so much to the United States of America and to the state of Kentucky. Senator Max Wise, when he first began his career, worked at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., in the counterterrorism unit, and worked closely with weapons of mass destruction. After he served to defend our country, he came back to Kentucky to defend the Commonwealth of Kentucky. He ran in 2015 and got elected as a Republican state senator. Senator Max Wise is now the chairman of the Education Committee and he has passed many successful bills in Congress up in Frankfurt. Senator Max Wise is a role model and a great individual. He is a family man, but most importantly, he is a Christian. And in this podcast, I have asked Senator Max Wise if he would ever consider running for higher office. And will he run for higher office? We'll find out in today's episode of The Vote Podcast. Once again, my name is Luke Wyatt. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Without further ado, let's get into the podcast with Senator Max Wise. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here with Senator Max Wise, the state senator of Kentucky. He is a Republican representative of District 16 here in Kentucky, and we're honored to have him here on the Vote Podcast. And Senator Wise, thank you so much for coming here today and taking time out of your day for being on the Vote Podcast. Luke, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's been a, a couple of years since I've seen you, but uh, going back to your time at Boy State and everything you've done, you've always been a, a great friend of mine. And uh, I've loved seeing the trajectory of your career path that's taken off. So thanks for having me on your podcast today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for those kind words. I've always, like I told you, I've always tried to get my name out there. And like, I feel like my calling is to public service. And I want to start getting that 
trajectory. And we was talking briefly before this, and I just love your career and everything that's happened. And tell our viewers, and to go on to our first question, you worked in Washington, D.C. at the FBI headquarters as an intelligence analyst, and you worked in the FBI specifically as a counterterrorism unit. And I just find that so interesting. I worked in Washington, D.C. last summer for Congressman James Comer in the first district. And as a political junkie, I always went sightseeing. So I always walked down Pennsylvania Avenue, going to the White House. And every time I passed the FBI headquarters, I swear, because I always remember you worked at the FBI headquarters. I'm like, Senator Max Wise used to work there as well as in the FBI. There's so many potential, so many political influences that we that Kentucky has produced. And I want to ask you a little bit about your time in the FBI and counterterrorism unit in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and just kind of your time there as well. What were some of the day-to-day activities and stuff? What were some of your tasks? And how did work in the FBI prepare you for a state senator run here in Kentucky? So all good questions. And so, uh, you know, my time in the FBI, I got in shortly after 9-11. Uh, I'd wanted to work for the FBI since probably I was in middle school. And I'd, uh, I always tell the, the people that I saw the movie Silence of the Lambs. You know, it was a serial killer movie. And uh, I just thought, man, that would be a really awesome organization to work for. And uh, I do not have parents that are in law enforcement. You know, my mother was a college women's basketball coach. My dad was worked at a factory as a manager. And, uh, you know, I always just set goals for myself. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to do uh, was to work for the Bureau. And when I was in college uh, in 95, that was a big hype year for, for counterterrorism. You had the uh, uh, Oklahoma City bombing had occurred. You had the first World Trade Center bombing. You had a sarin gas uh, bio attack over in Japan. And so that was in my sophomore year of college. And I really just kind of took off of studying more about counterterrorism. Uh, and I thought, you know, this maybe could help build my resume and do some things and end up applying to grad school. I went to the University of Kentucky. They've got a program called the Patterson School of International Affairs. And uh, it was there that I focused on national security and intelligence and uh, finished the Patterson School program in 1999. I applied to the Bureau. Unfortunately, they were not hiring at that time. They had a hiring freeze through most of the 90s. But when 9-11 happened, uh, that was my opportunity. As tragic as that event was, that was the opportunity. And so uh, my application was still active. They'd contacted me. I came through, went through all the, the different hoops and hurdles and tests that I had to do and uh, was very fortunate. My first unit was in the Weapons of Mass Destruction, Emerging Weapons Threat Unit uh, that was in the Counterterrorism Division, as you mentioned. Um, and I think it's a lot because of some of the papers I wrote in college and some things about cults and bioterrorism, biochemistry and stuff like that, biological warfare. And so um, I think that really set myself up for an interview. And uh, I was able to successfully land that. And I was stationed, like you mentioned, at FBI headquarters. I went to Quantico, went through uh, numerous weeks of training uh, up there. And, uh, you know, the FBI was just, uh, it's, it's the movies make it out to be one thing. And it's similar in aspect to that, but at the same time, you know, the men and women of the FBI are just some of the best. I mean, they're truly the, the Eagle Scouts. You know, they're the ones that have just got a, uh, a very clean record and just trying to do what's best for the, for the entire country. And, you know, I think working with people uh, in the FBI has helped set myself up in, in leadership because, you know, everybody in the FBI comes from different backgrounds, but they're all for the same goal. And the same goal is trying to protect our country. And, you know, you look legislatively where I'm at the Kentucky Senate. We all come from different areas of the state, but I think we're all trying to advance Kentucky. Uh, some of us may be on one side as Republican and some on the other side as a Democrat. But, you know, I'd say a large portion of what we do in Frankfurt state politics is truly what's in the best interest of Kentucky. And I, I mean that. And uh, a lot of times the media won't focus on the bills that pass 
138 to zero. You know, they focus on the wedge issues and there are wedge issues. You know, there's many times that we're going to have controversial bills and controversial topics. And a lot of that gets back to, you know, the us versus them of those that live in rural area compared to urban area. You know, we see things sometimes different on certain uh, political ideologies and public policy. But at the same time, I think we both and, and all sides are trying to do what's best for Kentucky. So I think the FBI uh, was unique for me. It's definitely a conversation starter. You know, anytime that somebody hears that I work for the FBI, they're like, oh, man, tell us about this. Or, you know, what was it like this? And, and I love those stories. And I still teach. I teach at the University of Kentucky in graduate school classes. And I'm a mentor to my students. Many of them want to work for the CIA or the FBI or State Department. And that's my job now is to help them achieve their dreams and their goals and work for those agencies. And I think that's so admirable about you, Senator Wise. I mean, you're always giving back and you're, you're a teacher. I mean, you're a professor and you're always teaching the younger. And that's the best way to give back. You know, my mother's a teacher. She, well, she just retired last year, but she was a teacher in middle school. And she said the reason she did it was never she never did it for like the money or anything like that. She did it because she always wanted to give back and love the students. And, you know, I had, you know, Dr. Pete, I had him on about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And he worked in the agency as well. And he kind of worked you know, more specifically with like international problems or kind of like agency or spy stuff. And one thing that people always consider is that FBI and CIA are kind of like intertwined or kind of the same. But when you look at it, they're obviously not where FBI is kind of more domestic, where like CIA or other agencies are more international foreign. So how real, and I think we have a narrow scope on terrorism in our country that we always look to overseas, maybe the Middle East, other country, China, Russia, we always look at that aspect of it, but how real is a terrorist threat domestically from like our domestic people here in the United States? Is that really big of a threat that we have here? You know, I, I think that is, is something that many times we forget about. You know, like I mentioned, some of the events that took place when, in 1995 when I was in college, but you did have the Timothy McVeigh uh, issue of the Oklahoma City bombing occur, you know, of some, some right wing militias that were targeting the government of this one world government uh, uh, ideology that was out there. But you do have a lot of the the international, and and I think both of those we've seen that have played out here within the United States of, of those that may be domestically uh, raising money or, or trying to do fundraising that would go to support groups if it's in uh, Palestine or if it's in Syria or North Korea or wherever it may be. But you know, there's always going to be bad actors out there. Some of those actors could be here domestically, uh, or they could also be from the international stage. And so, you know, the 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 threats many times gets taken into place of what the current political climate may be. You know, you're seeing what's playing out right now with Russia, Ukraine. You know, there's been history of involvement of, of Russian terrorism, you know. And so, um, you know, th- those things, history, you know, kind of can repeat itself many times. Uh, I think we've done a great job at the intelligence community with technology today, but also those agencies are working together more than they ever did before. That was one of the faults of 9-11 is the CIA and the FBI weren't sharing intelligence as well as they are today. And I think that's a that's what Americans want to see. They want to make sure their intel communities are working together and they're not hiding things and saying it's a turf battle or, or hiding jurisdictional, you know, takes on things. And we've really improved in that as a country. And I think it's only going to get better. I think the young people today that are coming out of the of, of college and grad school want to apply for these types of jobs. And it could be coming from, from military backgrounds. You know, we're all wanting to protect the United States and it could be from enemies afar or enemies within. I, I agree with that tremendously, and I feel like we have to work together and stuff. And what you said in your previous answer is that we're all working toward, whether that be Kentucky or as a country, we're all working toward that unity. We always want a better Kentucky or better the nation and stuff. And that's, I had Dr. Pete on, Mr. Stevie Ray, and 
last week I had Representative Cunningham, Joe Cunningham from South Carolina. He's running for governor down there. And he was saying, you know, we, he said, like you said, you never see those votes that are like everyone agrees on it and votes on it. You always see like a bipartisan split and stuff. And he said, you know, we need to focus more on the media and everything, focus on what we did accomplish as a unit instead of like us trying to divide each other. And I, I agree with that tremendously and the domestic threat as well. And now to shift kind of the talk from your early career as FBI till today's time, this year is kind of election year for you. You're running for re-election in your district. You first seeked office in 2015. Which, and also, can you talk a little bit about in a Senate race for the state, for a state Senate race, can you talk a little bit behind like the functions of it and how it works? In the media, you can always see like a presidential race or maybe a U.S. senator's race being publicized or a governor's race. But can you talk about a state senator's race and kind of the functions and foundation and please talk about your district as well and how you're how you kind of come back in your district as well well i think it, they're all unique races and your, your first race is always you know the one you remember and you cherish the most and that you can win that one not to say the other ones aren't important because you know the first one is you're stepping out there for the first time to see your name on a ballot and uh, you know I, I will say i took a different and, and an interesting pathway that most people may or may not uh, you know agree with or they may, may not choose I ran against an incumbent with my own uh, uh, political party. I'm Republican. So we did redistricting, uh, and that was in 2010, but it did not take effect until 2014. And so uh, when I looked at the map of what the 16th district was like at that time, three counties had been shifted and put into four other counties. And so the three new counties were Taylor, Adair, and Russell. I looked, and I was a political science professor. I started looking at the numbers, and I started to see, okay, if I'm able to win those three new counties where the incumbent did not have a name ID or name recognition, I think I can really pull this thing off. If I can cut into the four other counties that she had, not necessarily win those, but if I can cut the vote margin and do really well down there and win the other three overwhelmingly, I got a shot. So my first race, I would love to have seen a Netflix documentary done about my race because I think it would have been amazing to have seen uh, I ran it with my wife and my four kids, and I went to chili suppers and fish fries and carnivals and fairs and parades, you name it. And I truly just had to get my message out there. And I told everyone that I came across, and I've always said this, is, you know, I'm not identified just as being a, a elected official with a name on a ballot, but I'm a, a husband, I'm a father, I'm a Christian. And I always, you know, just kind of kept hitting those same marks of just name identification of who I am. Uh, got very uh, fortunate in my race. I was able to win that. Uh, won by about nine and a half percent, beating an incumbent. I uh, kind of went against the establishment at that time. Uh, and then when I ran for re-election, I did not have an opponent. I had a write-in opponent that had challenged me. So this is my upcoming third uh, term. So we serve four for four-year terms in the state senate. Um, and uh, you know, hopefully, you know, when you build up a little bit of name recognition, it can help you in certain areas of your district. Uh, I still am one of those elected officials that doesn't just show up at election time. I go to my districts quite a bit. I speak at Chamber of Commerce meetings. I go to Rotary Club meetings. I walk town squares. I go and introduce myself and just talk to people. I also do town halls. I love being visible in my district. Sometimes people may show up or they may not, but they appreciate and make an attempt to do those types of things. Now, I will say this too, uh, Luke, we have redistricted in the state Senate with our map. The state house also is redistricted. So with that, we took the 2020 census. My district now has shifted because of population shifts in Kentucky. My first original district was Taylor, Adair, Russell. 
Cumberland, Clinton, Wayne, Macquarie. I now have lost of those seven counties I just mentioned, five of those now have shifted away from me. I now have Taylor, Adair, Metcalf, Monroe, Allen, and about 40,000 people in eastern Warren County. So I'm now into Bowling Green. So my shift has completely taken me from my area of central Kentucky, more over into south central Kentucky. Um, and, you know, I, I look forward to those opportunities. You know, you have relationships you build and redistricting kind of forces you to kind of develop new relationships and getting to know people. So this race is going to be unique. It's going to be one where I've got to go back out, work, get my name identification out there uh, and approach it very similar to like I did my first. Yeah, I mean, and I also think that could be a good thing, too, as well, because, I mean, even though you lost those counties, people still recognize Senator Max Wise and stuff, and they can always come to you and like voice their opinion. I, I appreciate that. You know, and that's what I've told a lot of people in my district is they don't understand many times and policy and politics is, is, is can be very confusing because we have three layers of local, state, and federal government too. But I think a lot of people still reach out to me and I've always tell them, listen, I may not be your state senator on paper, but I'm still your state senator as a friend. I'm happy to still help on issues. And so I appreciate you bringing that point out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great of your perspective and everything as well. I mean, you have to, whether you're, you're the constituent or not, if you can reach out and listen, I think that's great. I mean, and you're meeting the, the common good and the common goal of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And I feel like that's always a good thing. Thank and, you. Yeah. And then I know this, I know this year is very busy in Frankfurt with the in session happening. And I like to talk about some of the legislation that is going through Congress and going through the session as well. And to start off with, I like to talk about House Bill 1. So House Bill 1 is the budget bill for, and for Murray State, I know Dr. Jackson and our government relations person, Jordan Smith, has very been vocal about this. And Jordan Smith is one of my personal really good friends. I talk to him on the daily. Basically for House Bill 1, Jordan Smith and Dr. Jackson has advocated for Murray State to have a new a nursing and health professional building as well as funding for assets preservation and deferable maintenance. And this does not require a match along with pension assistance and along with other items. How likely is this bill to stay in the Senate budget bill and pass through the Senate? Good question. And first, let me start by saying you have excellent leadership down there with both of those gentlemen that you mentioned, Dr. Jackson and, and Jordan both. I meet quite often as the education chairman in the Senate. Uh, there's many times that I, I discuss policy with all of my university presidents and K through 12 educators uh, across the state. Um, but I, the, the House Bill 1, I will say the budget bill, I was very impressed with what the House put together. I thought they did a great job. They got it to us early. Uh, and I think uh, Representative Petrie, who's chairman of the A&R committee, did a very, very good job of really looking at this from a, from a great fiscal conservative aspect but also looking at some of the needs and the wants and desires of what's coming down the pipe. And nursing is a huge issue. You know, we've seen uh, the, the healthcare industry during COVID took a major hit. We saw, we started to see nurses leave Kentucky to be travel nurses and to flock to other states because of pay. And we didn't get ahead of that. You know, we should have. And that was one of the things I wish the governor had done. You know, when we did the executive order was to have done some things to keep our nurses here. Uh, but I do like the legislation, I think, for West Kentucky and for, for far West Kentucky around the Murray area. That's a game changer. Uh, we've got some legislation, Senate Bill 10, which is uh, Senator Bobby Mills from Henderson, not too far from you, uh, that has put in some things into place uh, to open the cap limit. Because right now, many universities, because the Board of Nursing says we only can have X number of nurses in Kentucky or at nursing schools. We're wanting to remove that. We're wanting to say, listen, Let's get as many as we can. You know, we, we still want quality, 
not just a quantity number, but at the same time, rural hospitals are needing nurses at an all-time high. So I'm very supportive of House Bill 1 uh, and the things that it's looking to do in there. I hope that Murray State is able to come through with the infrastructure and the bonding on this because I do think it could be a great fit for the exciting things you guys are already doing down at Murray State. And I don't know if you've been to Murray State, but we have a new biology chemistry building and my brother's pre-med and he has all of that side over there and then I'll have sure. faculty hall. So we we value pre-medicine, nursing. So this bill would highly help Murray State University. And my mother, she graduated here in Murray State and she said she remembered having classes in the nursing building. Yep. So that, that building is really needed renovation and update. So we, we're hopeful this bill will pass the Senate and we're, we're very thankful for the bill as well because it will help out nurses in general because I go to church and one of my church members, they got COVID and was hospitalized yep. and they were in actually the hallway of it because there was a lack of nurse, a lack, a lack of rooms, and there's not a lot of doctors to wait on them and stuff. So if we can get the, I see, and I also didn't know there was a number on nurses programs on that. Yeah. So if we can get that passed, I mean, that'd be amazing for the university and also the, the nursing community in general. No, I agree. So the budget wise, just so for you and your listeners to know where uh, today is uh, as we're recording this, it's February 22nd. This is day 20 or we used to have 28 days left of the legislative session. We're on day 32. This is a 60 day session. So this is our long session because it is the budget. So in those 28 days left, you're going to start the Senate, start to move the budget here in uh, probably around day 20, day 18, I think you'll see the Senate version of the budget get out and start moving back over the House. And then they go into conference committee with both chambers of House and Senate leadership to really work out any final revisions of the budget. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, like you said, it's a long session. And I, I know it's very stressful up there and fast paced at the moment and stuff. But we yes. want to, from your constituents, we want to say thank you so much for continuing to focus on the bill and, and just everything you have done. Thank you. And then also, I want to talk about what has been buzzing here on campus. See, I'm in the SGA, which is our Student Government Association. I'm a chairman position here at Murray State. And one thing that's been buzzing in the House bill is House Bill 290. And it's compassion bill in the Senate. So in the Senate Bill 129. So in this Senate Bill 129 is the, the Kentucky Campus Due Process Bill. And as a student, this bill sounds, ultimately, it sounds very good and promising, but it's also very problematic for us as well. It treats every minor student conduct case where we would have to provide for attorney fees and it's attorney presence. So any small misconduct, we would have to fork out money or pay a little money to these attorney fees. And this money could go away from, you know, SGA or other student organizations that are lacking funding and maybe even our nurses, nursing program. So what are the chances the bill makes it through process and through the Senate and through the House as well as this bill, Senate Bill 129? Well, it, just so, uh, you know, you understand as well as the listeners, it is a, of serious concern. I mean, what you're describing there, we're, we're starting to see that. We're starting to hear from a lot of constituents, a lot of parents about issues that have happened about requiring attorneys and making sure that we have due process. The question that, that's truly laying before us right now is what committee is this better suited for? Because you're dealing with judicial issues of, ju of due process and, uh, you know, uh, Ninth Amendment and all types of things that come into play. But then you also have the education side of it because it is on university campuses. And so uh, I think the bills have been assigned to education. Uh, our leadership is, is having to also work with all the different stakeholders and you know, when you've got multiple universities, not just Murray State, but when you've got UK, U of L, the different ones, you know, a lot of times we're trying to find compromise. We're trying to find areas that we can 
become adaptable. You know, one of the things we want to always do is work out problems before we have to make a legislative fix. And sometimes that's best done in the interim. And I think what this bill may ultimately have to happen is if it doesn't go through this session, it may be one that's put forth in the interim that we can have some time to devote and having all sides of the issue come and testify and discuss it more with legislators. You know, and, and many times in a 30-day session or a 60-day session, you know, we get so consumed with all these pieces of legislation uh, and we want to give it our best focus as could be. Um, but once again, I, the bill may be redirected and it may go towards judiciary. The chairman of that is Senator Whitney Westerfield from Hopkinsville, uh, Christian County. Whitney and I have had a lot of good conversations about the bill uh, because we want to do what's in the best interest of the students. You know, we, we don't want to do something that's going to hurt students, and especially their voice. And if uh, a legal issue arises on campus, but we also know that universities have disciplinary codes and they have codes of conduct they go by. So it's a, it's kind of a, a, a slippery slope type of issue of what we're looking to do. But I do think that this bill ultimately is either if this if it goes this session, it's going to go to judiciary. If it's not dealt with this session, I think it's uh, we'll have a lot of time spent in the interim and then we'll come back in, in 2023 and probably knock it out there. OK, and I just want to be kind of clear for the, the listeners and stuff. If it's not decided this session, do you see it being changed in any way in next year's session at all? Or do you think the bill will kind of stand just or it may change as committees itself? It could. It all depends on how much support we can get and trying to get all the different groups behind it to come to some type of an agreement. And so when you're dealing with universities, you're dealing with students, it's you want a bill, you know, that's going to be able to pass and you're going to be able to see what what is in the bill that can be able to get the necessary votes to pass out of committee and pass off of the different respective floors. And so you know, it may be that we can whip the vote. We can see what the vote count looks like. And if it doesn't have the support, it may have to go back into the process and work on some things to improve. And if it doesn't happen this session, we always can come back next session. We've always said this, the state of Kentucky, the Kentucky Constitution, everything we do, we have survived as a state for hundreds and hundreds of years. And if this does have to be pushed back to next session, and we can solve it then. Let's not give up the sake of the great just for the sake of the good. Absolutely. And I agree with that tremendously. I mean, if we can come to a common agreement and a consensus on the good term, I mean, like you said, over like the nurses program stuff, we want quality over quantity. So like if we can have a great quality bill that works for the majority of the state and works for all the common ground, I mean, that's, that seems like a no brainer yeah. of what, what we should do. So I agree with that tremendously. And also I want to congratulate you on Senate bill six. So on Senate bill six, yeah, some people may not know and some of the listeners, it's it's Kentucky's name, image, likeness bill. So this is basically kind of goes toward professional, oh, not professional, goes to college athletes and get their name and image and likeness out there. And if you don't follow Senator Max Wise on Facebook, like I do, if you look, you had on the bill, you sponsored this. Uh, no, you, you were a co-sponsor with Senator McGarvey, but also at the conference, you had Coach John Calipari there was along with athletes there as well. Can you talk about, you know, having – Coach Cal there as well and some of the athletes, but also can you talk about the program in general and how this is, how this affect Murray State in general and small, smaller universities? So name image likeness is also commonly called NIL just for the short acronym of it. And so it's Senate Bill 6. And so um, I filed the bill. I'm the primary sponsor. Senator McGarvey has joined with me as a co-sponsor. We've been working on this since June. And so during the summer, during the fall, you know, we started monitoring what other states were doing. And 
you know, NIL, transfer portal, college athletics is completely changing. Uh, and if we don't adapt legislatively uh, by laws, then we're going to be left behind. And so I do think NIL is going to completely continue to change. I think what we've got right now is over the House. Uh, and by the end of the session, we may have to make a tweak to it. I think it's going to be one of those issues next year we come back because the NCAA, they kind of put their head in the sand for all these years and didn't do anything about it. U.S. Congress did nothing about it. The Supreme Court finally made the decision, so the state's having to pass it. I like the, the issue because we, we have to look at student athletes and with the Supreme Court basically saying, if Oscar Schwebway, you know, can, can make jersey sales, he should be able to get royalty off of those jersey sales. Um, and if, if Alexis or Fazoli's or whoever wants to sponsor, you know, any college athlete, male or female, you know, let them earn that. You know, they have the right to because someone's making a profit off of them uh, and their name, their image or likeness. And, uh, look at John Moran. Look at down at Murray State. I mean, he probably still would have jumped to the professional leagues, but my gosh, what if all of a sudden he could have had a million-dollar NIL deal? Maybe he would have said, you know what, I'm going to stay around for another year. And so I do think for certain athletes, some are going to fast-pace and move on to professional athletics, but there's others. This can benefit them, can benefit their families, and so I was glad to be a sponsor of this bill. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And also, last Thursday was John Morant Day here at Murray State. Was playing Austin P. and he came back because this awesome. Yeah, so this is a break of the All Star weekend. So he was an All Star, so he had to go back and play. But he came and watched the games. But just like you were saying, like, what if he stayed in an extra? Because he was a, a junior, I think. But what if he stayed an extra year or two? The crowd it pulled in just last Thursday, and him being in the NBA. But imagine him in college. Yep. I mean, absolutely, just like playing. I mean, it was amazing. It brought in a lot of crowd when he was here in college. Imagine if he stayed two more years, and it could have brought a lot more funding yeah. to the university. So, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it's a great bill. I feel like it was it was needed as well because other states also adopted as well. And I took actually yeah. Jordan yeah. Smith is a state and local politics professor here too, and I took one of his classes, and he was saying, you know, states model a lot of other states too to see how other states interact. So I think it was a needed time. I need a change that Kentucky needed for our athletes. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and also I want to talk about one, one committee. I mean, you're in big, huge four committees. Let me read you some of the committees that you're on. You're the chairman of the education committee. You're on the Senate agriculture committee. You're in the Senate health and well and welfare committee. And you're also on the Senate of transportation. And one big thing of the Senate committee that you're on is the health and welfare committee. And, of course, a big thing that's been going around in 2020 and also 2021 and in 2022 is COVID-19 and the pandemic and stuff. And personally, I'm ready for, you know, the mass mandates to end, ready to go back to normal. And I was on the phone with my friend Tanner, and he goes to Mizzou in Columbia. And he goes to University of Missouri. And he was telling me that they don't have to wear a mask at universities anymore or they can just basically open, open over there in Missouri. And I was just kind of curious about your opinion on how did we do in Kentucky on the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020? How did we respond? What's your opinion also? And also, I like to say that Murray State with Dr. Jackson and also Jordan Smith, they did very well in the pandemic. I mean, with the guidelines with CDC, Dr. Jackson had very common sense ideas as well and stuff. So I believe, I believe we did very good here at Murray State with it, but I'm also ready, just like Dr. Jackson is, I believe, to get back to normal and get back to that normalcy. So how do we do and how do we respond to COVID-19 as a state of Kentucky, but also are we closer to getting toward the end of that COVID-19 pandemic kind of phrase, or are we still kind of in it for like a long run, you would say? 
Good questions. I do think we are at the end. I think most people are now calling it an endemic. Um, and, you know, it, it's easy for me uh, as a Republican to go back and, and cast stones at the governor for a lot of things that he did. You know, no one had ever had a playbook on this in modern times and know what the right decision was and wasn't to do. Uh, I, I will say I didn't like a lot of the mandates. I thought a lot of his executive orders were overreach at the time. I think there were some things that were unnecessary. But listen, if he thought that was what was best needed, then he may, you know, have to pay that with uh, a re-election. If he doesn't win, people probably will remember those types of things. But I will also say in terms of the mask, you know, we had in the special session in September when we dealt with K through 12 schools, we ended the mask mandate, but we gave it back to local control with school boards to be able to make the best decision. School, some school systems still are masking students. You know, I wish they would not. I wish they would. Uh, in, in my district, uh, overwhelmingly, I think all of them have gone to just mask optional. It's fine for the parent, fine for the student. You don't have to wear them. You still want to do it? That's fine. It's your decision to do that. I'm not going to, you know, disparage anyone that still wears those. But I do think we are toward the point of the endemic. University of Kentucky, we still wear masks. Uh, I've not seen my students' faces in a classroom, you know, for two years now. Uh, just like you said, you know, as, as you are with a sophomore, um, you know, and and I think the universities were trying to do the best that they can. Uh, but we do have a Senate Joint Resolution SJR 90 that says the state of emergency is over. We, if, if that passes, it will say that I think the date's March 7th. I don't think at that point universities or masking at all can look to say, are we still doing this when the legislature has ended this state of emergency? Um, I hope we don't see any more spikes, but also know we have to live our lives and we have to be able to, as a society, get people working. We've got to get work production back. We've got a bad crisis right now of lack of work participation levels. Uh, but we also need to have that sense of normalcy. And I think we've lost a lot of that. I think our education systems will look back and we'll see there was some major damage done to children of not being able to be in-person education. You know, uh, probably like you, my daughter was a junior when that hit and lost the entire year. And, you know, COVID learning was difficult. Teachers adjusted the best they could. But, you know, we have as a society, we've got to bounce back. And I'm not for vaccine passports to show that, you to eat at a certain restaurant or do things. I think that needs to end. Uh, this is not who we are as the United States. Um, and we've got to get the country back. And what, what we need to do as a state. And well, one thing that you talked about just briefly right then is you said that, you know, work incentives or work is going back to work is kind of at the all time low at the moment. Do you think how would we get the, in the state? How would we get back to normalcy to get these people back to work and get these people instead of getting these handouts, how would you say that would you get them back to work and start working in general? You know, we we were having a workforce production or labor production issue in a crisis before COVID. We were starting to see that happening, you know, um, and I'm open uh, for anything we need to do with immigration uh, to get more people here in the country for certain types of jobs. That's just where we are right now. You know, we've got a sector of our ag community and others of where we just simply don't have people that want to do those types of jobs. I want immigration to be fair. I want it to also be able to people go by the books and that we're still checking the backgrounds of people. But we've got to open a lot of things up with the sector of, of immigration for certain types of jobs and career paths. We also need to make sure that our young people coming out of high school uh, are told that they don't have to go to college, that they need to have another career pathway for them. If it's working with HVAC, if it's welding, if it's whatever the job market may be. And we've started to invest in that, but you have to start at middle school. You have to start showing people there is great money to be made 
you know, in terms of some of these jobs and some of these career paths. But, you know, in terms of incentivizing, I hate to say that, but it, it's it's the world we're in. You know, someone shouldn't be incentivized to go to work. Uh, everyone should have a work ethic because that's who we are. We're Americans. And I'm worried about that. You know, I think it's too easy now for people just to say, well, you know, the government's going to take care of me. I'll just stay home. That, that, that's not the way it should be because other countries are going to completely pass us by. Uh, and we're still one of the smartest and brightest countries in the world. But the work ethic is what's got to completely change. Yes, sir. I mean, like you said, keeping people in Kentucky and working. And I worked on the education committee when I was in high school. And they were saying, we got we to gotta tell people that it's, it's, it's okay if you don't want to go to college because we need people in the trade. I mean, and I feel like we need to emphasize that more in high school and other educations as well. And also, this is my final question, Senator Wise, and yeah. I know you're, you're very busy and you have another meeting to go to, but I also want to ask you, I mean, I love your story. And like I told you before, your, my dream job is probably working in D.C. and either FBI, CIA, some, some along those lines, and coming back and running for office. I mean, that's exactly what you did. I mean, you worked in the counterterrorism unit in Washington, D.C. You know how Washington works. You know how to enforce laws. And you know what, what kind of dangers there are out there. And you come back to serve as a public, you know, a state senator, but also you're, you're a teacher. I mean, you love teaching younger students. and I just love and admire everything about you. And there's also rumors going around of you running for governor, higher positions as well. And I was just wondering, what are some of your future goals that you want to do later on in your life? And so I know you're a state senator now. You have re-election coming up. But is there any any step up that you want to do? Anything else you want to run for? Because I know there's rumors going around. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I would be lying if I said that I was not looking at some other things. I think it all comes down to where is the right opportunity for me and my family? And is it the right time for me and my family? Um, you know, I'm 46 years old. You know, my, my children, I've got one. And I've got an 18, a 16, a 14, and an 11-year-old. And so, Things are a little bit easier now than they were, you know, when I first ran for political office. But as a parent, you know, you're, you're always different stages of your life when your kids are maturing. But um, I, I would be a line if I didn't say that, you know, if a door opens as an opportunity and I'm going to look and see what's behind that door. If it is running for governor, if it's running for Congress, if it's running for U.S. Senate one day, I think a lot of those things, you know, but I won't be the only one. There'll be a lot of other people as Republicans and Democrats looking to do the same. Um, you know, I follow uh, my good friend is Congressman Jamie Comer. They're in the first district. Congressman Comer and I, we, we communicate a lot uh, between us. And so, you know, I've, I've always said that, you know, a lot of moves that the congressman may make or some moves of what I may look to do depend on what he does. Uh, and so if that's running for governor, running for a congressional seat, um, I'm just glad to have conversations like that. You know, when people ask me that, it, it humbles me because, you know, it shows that, you know, I've got some level of support from people that think that what I'm doing up here, I'm doing the right thing and trying to help out from families and uh, constituents across the state. So uh, I can't say for right now, uh, I have a timeline or a time frame of what I will run for. Uh, but I do think that if an opportunity presents itself that uh, I don't want to have a regret in life. I don't want my kids to ever look back and say, I wish my dad had done that because we don't know what could maybe happen. So uh, if, it, if it's there, I, I, I will seriously look at any opportunity. Well, Senator Wise, I, want to, I just want to say uh, you have my support. I mean, you have a lot of people's support. I mean, I admire everything about you. And I worked for Congressman Comer in Washington this past summer. I interned with him, and he is such a knowledgeable yep. man as well. And, and, you know, he served as a, a commissioner of agriculture here in Kentucky as well. So he kind of started at, in the state level as well and worked his way up into the national level. 
which is also a great stepping stone to start off with. So That's great. I think, yeah. So I think whatever you, whatever you choose to do, I think you'll have tremendous support, you know, in anywhere you go. Cause like you said, I mean, your, your district changed. So you already have some support from other districts as well. You have support from Western Kentucky and obviously Congressman Comer in DC as well. So wherever you choose, I, I fully support you. And I'll, I'll support your decision as well. Luke, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation today and I wish you the best of luck with your studies. And, uh, you know, thank you to, to Murray State for all the work that they're doing, producing some great graduates out there. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful place for an education. And uh, I thank you again for the work you're doing. If I could any help, don't hesitate to let me know. All right. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. And thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Luke. Thank you so much. I'll see you. See you, buddy. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the Vote Podcast with Senator Max Wise. Once again, I want to thank Senator Max Wise for coming on to the episode today. It truly means a lot to him, and I wish the best of luck in his future endeavors. Once again, everyone, my name is Luke Wyatt. Continue to stay safe out there. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Hope you have a great day. God bless, and God bless America.